This episode consists of two separate interviews I did with Ian A.A. Watson, who is one of the developers for Victorian Age Mage, and Victor Kinzer, friend of the show and one of the writers. Uh, Victor's interview is after Ian's. We strongly encourage you to participate in the Indiegogo campaign, which is linked in the show notes. As Ian says, if you want more information about the Victorian Umbra, comment in the Indiegogo campaign, and maybe indicate that you want me to be the writer. Let's see if we can get something to happen. And with that, on with the show. Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast. And today, my distinguished repeat guest is Ian A.A. Watson of Onyx Path Publishing, the brains and the the dynamite creative field behind the Trinity universe, as well as behind a a new supplement that is coming out as part of the Mage 20th anniversary line, Mage Victorian Age. Uh, Two questions for you, Ian. How are you doing? And what is this actual project called? I'm doing fine, thank you. It's great to be back. Just like our Dark Ages Vampire product was technically Vampire 20th Anniversary Edition, The Dark Ages. We just called it V20 Dark Ages for short. This is Mage 20th Anniversary Edition, Victorian Age, but we're just calling it Victorian Mage. I'll take it. And the graphics for it look gorgeous. So kudos to whoever did that. Thank you. Um, Everything on the Kickstarter was Mike, but the little... M20 symbol thing that was me because I realized we didn't have one of those yet and I slapped it together. I look at your Twitter feed and I'm constantly enraged at how little graphic design ability that I have and like (laughs) of skills that I wish I could steal from someone in a daring midnight raid or using a level six Garu gift. I think getting two dots in graphic design would probably be at the top of my list. So uh, I I appreciate your work. For sure. I do a lot of shit posting, but it's um, great shit posting though. Like that's Thank the you. thing. That's what that's ah that's the glory of proper shit posting. Like Mike Mike Cheney's talents in terms of graphic make me look, you know, like garbage. So I just like it when I can throw something together and people seem to enjoy it. So the the M twenty coin, you know, it, it turned out pretty good. So I'm happy. And you did a number of other ones that I will also link in the show notes. You, you're also behind updated things for uh, some of the alternate tradition names. So if you want the uh, cool-ass glyph in Mage 20, instead of saying Akashic Brotherhood to say Akashiana, Ian did some marvelous renditions of those, which I will once again include in the show notes. That's true. But anyway, to the topic at hand. So why Victorian age? Why Mage? And I guess why now? The project has a long history. Back in 2006, Malcolm Shepard, who I'm sure many of you will recognize as as a big contributor to Mage over the years, on his live journal, he did up sort of a rough outline for a theoretical Victorian Mage period. And I loved that. And I did up uh, sort of a formal outline for it. And, you know, that's 15 years ago now. And it just sort of sat on a hard drive. I showed it around to a few people. Then when Rich was getting Onyx Path started, he said, I want to do a Victorian Mage. And I said, I have a, an outline for that. Yeah, we, we didn't end up using that outline because at least initially, Phil Bricotto was in charge of the, uh, the, the new Victorian Mage. So he had his own draft to work from. But over the years, there's been a lot of sort of shuffling of the development team and the, the writers. So there was a hole in development at, at one point where Chris Allen, who's my co-developer, you know, he has the development process down pat, but he was a little bit iffier on the details of mage lore. So internally we were saying, you know, we really should get a co-developer in there to help him out. And I'd love to do it because I know mage, but gee, I, I just really don't have the time. What was all the Trinity stuff that I'm working on? And the rest of the crew just said, Ian, 
do you want to do this? <laughs> Fine. Yeah. I was brought on board fairly late in the game after most of the first drafts were already in. So I didn't have a lot of influence over sort of how the book was shaped, but I got to sort of dig in with mage lore, which is, it, it's like giving me the keys to the candy store, basically. Dig through the, the drafts and uh, make what tweaks I could. And yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with the final result. And I hope everyone else is too. And I look forward to to seeing the ultimate result that comes out the other end of this. I'm, I'm pretty jazzed. Just the fact that there is an M20 line that still has books coming out and that it's mage mm-hmm. is uh, pleases me to no end. Um, oh, for sure. So, so fingers crossed that that Paradox chooses to uh, extend their largesse yet forward and allow us to extend the line to uh, its rabid fan base. It's interesting, though, that you bring up Victorian Age as something you had an outline for, because within mage lore, this is actually one of the few periods where we do have a fair amount of historical information. We have a lot of information around the founding of the nine mystical traditions, as well as the the formation of the Order of Reason and so on. But we actually get a big bolus of activity uh, around the Victorian era. Uh, roughly, what are you defining the Victorian Age as? Uh, obviously, there's going to be a little bit of lead in and there's going to be like a little bit of a, a handoff to whatever comes next but just so we can kind of bound the discussion is there a rough time period that you're looking at for this if you look at victorian age vampire they focused specifically on the not quite two decades between 1880 which was the foundation of the hermetic order of the golden dawn and 1897 which was the publication of dracula in the introduction, which is part of the backer preview, which is up now on the Indiegogo, we explain the Victorian period covers between 1837, I think it was, to 1901. Like, it is the entirety of Queen Victoria's reign. But in that period, you have both the Albertan Reformation of the Order of Reason into the Technocratic Union in 1851. Then you have the Victorian Reformation in 1897, where the technocratic union becomes the more recognizable modern technocracy. Rather than have this massive technocracy chapter, which covers three different periods in detail, we're just sort of focusing on the middle period. There's enough detail that takes you throughout the entire period if you want it, but in terms of the detail that we're going into for the factions, it's sort of that 1851 to 1897 period. The, the other problem that we run into, and a lot of times when we think about Victorian age, is we generally just think about the United Kingdom and maybe the late Regency period in France and maybe uh, possibly Reconstruction in the United States. Does this book cover the globe? It absolutely does. The final chapter is labeled The World. The sections are Britain, which you know obviously comes first in a game with Victorian in the, the title. Then the Empire, which is Canada, Australia, India, Europe, North America, South America, Africa, and Asia. And Asia goes into detail on you know West Asia, Pacific Asia, Eastern Asia. There, it goes into a fair amount of detail on what's going on everywhere. Can you share maybe two or three facts or, or things about that greater mage world that maybe struck you as as the developer that you were uh, glad to see or you think that fans may appreciate that isn't just Western Europe and the United States? People are going to love this chapter because it's just full to bursting with information, not just on mage lore, but information about the Victorian period, which I frankly didn't know. Who, who talks about the Luba Empire, right? That's that's one of the things in our section on Central Africa. 
uh, I'll, I'll read a, a small segment of that because it's going to be one of the last chapters previewed. So, The Luba Empire is noted for its traders and a deep respect for the arts. The sacred Luba kings are highly respected, even outside its borders, and rule with the assistance of a council of nobles. This form of government allows the Luba a great deal of flexibility when working with imperial powers and other nations. Oral histories are kept by memory men who serve as imperial officers with significant responsibilities. The nation's position protects it from exploitation until the middle of the 19th century, when the Luba find themselves under siege from slave traders, raiders, and ivory hunters. The failure of the empire to modernize its military and the impact of constant outside threats brings this realm to an end. The kingdom's remnants are forcibly absorbed into the Belgian King Leopold's notorious Congo Free State. The Ngoma, the former patrons of the kingdom, find themselves driven south as traders and raiders sponsored by the Order of Reason, slowly eat away at the native consensus. The Bata'a try to assist the Ngoma, but social friction between the militant and often outsider Bata have the more reserved Ngoma make formal alliances difficult to maintain. So that's all based on real shit, right? And mm-hmm. it's something I had no idea about before I, I was reading this chapter. And an incredible amount of detail around the world for what was going on in the Victorian period. And I absolutely love it. And at the same time, you're also including groups that aren't just the nine traditions or the conventions. You make mention of the Nagoma, who are a cornerstone of the uh, Disparate Alliance, if you choose to play with that in your game, as well as the Bata'a, who are a craft that are large enough to be a tradition if they wanted to be and they cared about it. Right. Do you introduce any secret history? It's one of those things where... Uh, it is often the case that in Old World of Darkness, there are occasionally mortals who turn out to actually have been supernatural. And by and large, we get away from that. But also that there was a war that took place and there was a supernatural element. And this is how the those lines woke out. Or in between two major historical events, there was a mage-only event that occurred. Do you add anything to the secret history or the supernatural history? Or is it mostly just mages following what their mortal kin are doing? A big Key part of the the theme of the book is the imperialism and colonialism that Britain is engaging in at the time. And what the Order of Reason is doing is sort of reflecting that. It would almost be counter to the theme to introduce a bunch of secret mage-only wars that are happening. The emphasis is on, like, hey, this is bad. This is what the real world is doing right now. And the Order of Reason is sort of following suit. And it's not just a strict order of reason versus tech, uh, traditions thing here too, because uh, the order of Hermes and the core celestial also benefit from a lot of the, the imperialist attitudes. So the, the traditions aren't doing great as it is. And now they've almost got the possibility of a civil war brewing. Can you spell out what you would consider to be the sides of that civil war? The majority of the order of Hermes and the more imperialist portions of the, the core celestial, like, Obviously, they're big on paternalistic Christianity is their major faction there. Some of the minor factions within other traditions might join that side. It's not sort of like one side versus another mm-hmm. yet. It's, it has the potential to go that way. But there's a lot of disagreement within the traditions on exactly which way to go and how to handle things. Especially because this, this new technocratic union thing that people have been talking about has been making the rounds. 
And that's kind of interesting because one of the things that kind of changed in mage history was in first edition, World War II was strictly the traditions versus the technocracy. In second edition, it gets a little bit fuzzier and revised, it gets real fuzzy with very few people mm-hmm. emerging with clean hands in the in the wake of the that phase of the hemoclism. And it seems like you're setting that up again, where you are kind of pitting a mage's magical identity, possibly against their nascent identity as a member of a nation state, which is kind of taking form in this era. What do you do to transport a reader back to what the political and national considerations could be for something that happened 150 years ago? We have the the extensive world chapter just covering what everyone's doing at the time, what what sides various countries or governments might be taking for or against their own people. And the the sections on the traditions and the technocratic union and the crafts, they all sort of break down both what sort of the overall sentiment is and what individual factions might be up to. Interesting. Do we get any new groups in this? Or maybe do we get to see a group that has otherwise been uh, mythic in world history? Uh, one that comes to mind is at this point, the Alibatin are starting to come under severe pressure as the discovery of Middle Eastern oil uh, fundamentally transforms the web of faith. Do, do we get a focus on maybe some of those groups that aren't as big in contemporary mage, but would have been big at the time? Like we're not putting overemphasis on anyone to make up for the fact that they're not in the modern period. We're okay. sort of treating everyone equally. So the the Alibatine are indeed here. They, they've got a full write-up just like the rest of the traditions. They're not happy with the way things are going, their overall sentiment, and how fast they are to take action against the, the technocratic union. And on, on the flip side of that, of course, you have various factions within the union that are also dissatisfied and starting to break off sort of centered around this idea of the luminiferous ether. Yeah, so at this point, we, we essentially have a technocracy that has seven conventions in it, but you would have the the iterators, the progenitors, the syndicate, the new world order, the void engineers, as well as what were at the time, the electrodyne engineers and the analytical reckoners. Do we get a view of what the society of ether and what the Mercurian elite slash virtual adepts were like when they were still part of the technocracy? Yes, they, they all have write-ups as conventions, and you start to see sort of political blocks forming. And I think people will find that interesting because what you would expect is the conventions coming in from, say, the Renaissance period would more or less equal the, the conventions coming out at the end of the Victorian period. But it doesn't work out quite that way because there are a lot of conventions. I think we've actually got like eight or nine, but they start arranging themselves into political blocks. And it's those political blocks that become the modern conventions. Uh, one of the other groups that kind of undergoes a, a fundamental change here is that the Seers of Kronos become the cult of ecstasy with Shazar's return after the Seers of Kronos and the Euthanatoi have just been going ape against the technocracy in an attempt to to hold them back. Do we get any information about that transition? I understand that that may be a bit too niche. I recall that originally the write-up didn't have much, and I said, hey, look, there's this important thing that you need to at least include a mention of, because it's happening right in the middle of this period. I'm pretty sure that was it. Talking about the the current state of things rather than any recent upheaval, but I I did try to make sure, like, I was going through my list of historical events and trying to make sure we we mentioned as many of them as possible, as long as they're relevant. 
they're calling themselves, well, they're still using uh, Sahagia, but they're calling themselves by the more Latin name, uh, the cultistic status right now. Do we get new icons for the groups too? We might be seeing some by the end of the Indiegogo. We might not, but I'm pretty sure we are going to see new symbols just across the board. Nice. So you had made mention that one of the considerations is the question over colonialism. What to you are kind of the theme and the mood of this book? Uh, I fully recognize that it's a mage book. So of lines where you can just be like, screw it, we're doing our own thing. Mage is pretty high on that list. But uh, what what themes and moods were you trying to deliver as this book was uh, making its way? For the, the listening public, colonialism, I'm, I'm looking on Wikipedia here right now, colonium is a practice or policy of control by one people uh, or power over other people or areas, often by establishing colonies and generally with the aim of economic dominance. Paired with that, imperialism is a policy or ideology of extending the rule over peoples and other countries for extending political and economic access, power and control, often through employing hard power, especially military force, but also soft power. So those sort of go hand in hand there. That's very much like a lot of countries are doing that, but especially the British Empire. Like the saying is, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire. That's more true in the Victorian period than at any other time in history. And that's why the technocratic union is so in bed with the, the English royalty, first with Prince Albert and later on with Queen Victoria, because... Each sees the other as sort of two halves of the same coin. Like they not might not be the same thing necessarily, but the British Empire serves the goal of the order of reason and vice versa. Like the order of reason wants one world, one government, and that might as well be the British Empire. There, there's a lot of focus on not just, you know, the sort of dry stuff you'd read in a textbook. Like how, there's a lot of terrible stuff that they engage in to to maintain that that power and control and the order of reason is, is swooping in right behind them. So it's, it's not great. It's not great for anyone. And a lot of people are suffering under it. And that's a, a lot of the, uh, the, the key conflict of, of the period. Okay. So uh, just like as during world war two, the NWO saw the Axis powers as an opportunity to unite humanity, albeit in a remarkably bloody fashion. Uh, and likewise, mm-hmm. the way the Gabrielites saw Christianity as a way of uniting humanity, the cabal of pure, pure thought. This is another era where they see the rise of the British empire and say, Hey, this could be the thing that unites humanity and lets us rule them. Is that a, a reasonable interpretation? More or less. And you have to realize the order of reason was almost collapsing by the beginning of this period. And it took Prince Albert sort of bringing them back together again uh, as the technocratic union in order for them to start steamrolling back into power. The British Empire is almost part and parcel of the technocratic union from its founding. They're very like British centric, I should say. There are obviously other groups like the, the Dalu Laoshi in China which are sort of doing the same thing from the Chinese standpoint. The technocratic union as a whole is is very much a, a British institution at, during this period. Okay. So it does not necessarily have the global reach that we associate with a modern technocracy. No. They're almost everywhere you will find the British Empire, which is a lot of places. Yeah, yeah but not but everywhere. 
so that means that by extension, uh, areas that were maybe under the Portuguese uh, crown or Belgium or Germany or Spain or France, uh, they will get mentioned in the politics chapter, but they will not necessarily be in, in the part which talks about the, the technocracy uh, around the, the globe. Uh, do those other colonial powers get dealt with or does it mostly focus on the British colonial power? They do get dealt with. I mean, the order of reason is not officially part of the British Empire, obviously. It's it's just sort of associated with it. Mm-hmm. So they do have inroads with many of the other European powers, mm-hmm. but the focus is on Britain. Do we get any information on the world off the mud ball? Like, do we get an idea of what the Umbra looks like during this period or what the Shadowlands could look like or maybe high umbral realms that would be associated with these, uh, with the dominant cultural and scientific ideas at the time? You know, that is an excellent question. I don't think we do go into detail on any of the umbral realms, although that would be cool. So maybe stretchable material. We have kind of gotten spoiled that whenever there is a Kickstarter, it's actually two books where you get the core and then you get a companion piece. Uh, do you have an idea of what the the stretch goal for the book looks like? Well, uh, right now, the two stretch goals we have right now listed are a t-shirt, which is pretty standard fare, and ready-made characters. So we are going to be dipping into companion material later, but usually, other than vaguely saying, hey, we should do a companion, we sort of come up with a lot of the details on what that looks like during the Kickstarter as we see what people are excited about. There's no details, as far as I know, uh, about what's going into the companion, if we get a companion. Yeah, but uh, if like Umbra stuff is a fantastic idea, and I will certainly bring that up with the crew. Yeah, um, and and if if people in the comments say get really really into I don't know how do the electrical engineers use Morse code instead of binary, I, I don't know. We we can do a big section on how virtual reality works in the Victorian period. I don't know. <laughs> Just whatever people get jazzed about, we'll we'll go into detail on that. In oh, the man. companion, if if we think it's it's a viable topic, if the only requirement is to get people jazzed around, I feel like I have access to a hyperlaser in the form of like the mage, the podcast Discord community to be like, you should all drop subtle hints about being curious about what the uh, umbral realm of the ether frolic looks like, and ask the Terry write it. Hmm. <laughs> but uh, the the over under on that is, <laughs> is, is is reasonably low. Um, we'll see. <laughs> You talk about what the Society of Ether is up to. Uh, when I think the technocracy, I think gadgets and such. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that they are a paradigm that is tied to the understanding at the time. What do you do to outline what technocratic or technomantic magic of the period looks like? And do we get a big, meaty gadget section? Not so much on the gadget section, but we do have a section on magic and what it looks like. It is... 17,000 words. There's a decent amount of material. Mm-hmm. And this is not a standalone book like, say, Dark Ages Vampire was. This is more like a Victorian Age vampire where it assumes you have one of the core rule books. So we're assuming you have Mage 20 here. So on top of Mage 20's already extensive magic system, we have this 17,000 word magic chapter. Can you give a, a hint of maybe something that you thought was particularly interesting from that section or something maybe someone wouldn't have think of thought of when they think Victorian magic? In the modern period, there's more or less two kinds of magic. There's vulgar and coincidental. In the Victorian period, there's three kinds of magic. There's elegant magic, which is evoking the Victorian emphasis on propriety 
elegant magic refers to castings that display grace, subtlety, and cleverness. Then there's uncanny magic. So that's strange enough to be remarkable to the average human observer, but not brash and disruptive enough to seem catastrophic. Going to see a spiritual medium, like, ooh, ghosts. Everyone just accepts that that's a thing. It's not something catastrophic, and it's clearly not mundane, but it's nonetheless magical. And then, of course, catastrophic magic, which is what we would think of as vulgar. That is clearly not something that should be happening here. You know, the the elegant magic of, of, you know, quiet parlors. This is, you know, someone's hurling cats on fire down Main Street, you know. Which is pretty standard fare in Mage, so. (laughs) Yes. That's that's not too far. Um, There's also Paradox. We've seen the transition of Paradox over the centuries from Backlash in Dark Ages Mage, which was just, you know, if you perform magic poorly, then it's it's like a, a, a magical botch almost, right? In Sorcerer's Crusade, there's the Scourge, which it's not a good or evil force. It's just sort of if you do big magic, sometimes you get rewarded for it and sometimes you get for it almost not quite randomly, but it feels like it sometimes. And so you see it sort of progressing towards the modern understanding we have of paradox. So right here in the middle, in the Victorian period, it's the straits. Uh, that means strict or pull tight. It's the same Latin root that we get for string or strength or strain. So we're we're in dire straits now, that sort of thing. So it's it's not quite modern paradox, but it's not quite the scourge either. It's sort of that little in-between period. Oh, interesting. So we have we actually have mechanics to reflect that. That's that's pretty neat. Yes. And I assume do we get period appropriate rotes and such? Oh yeah, there's a decent amount of material here on that. Awesome. Uh, manifestations. Is... There's manifestations of quiet. It's all like Victorian appropriate twists on the modern understanding of how magic works. Oh, interesting. This is a period that is covering the end of the age of piracy and uh, the American Civil War. And that is something that we get a a few brief hints at in in Mage Continuity. Do we ever get information on, for instance, interfacing between Victorian Vampire or Werewolf the Wild West? We do have an antagonist chapter. So just like uh, Victorian Age Vampire had a section like, oh, here's some wizards and mystics that you might want to use. And, you know, if you squint, you can see how that works into vampire, uh, mm-hmm. into mage, rather. But they don't use any mage terms. In the same vein, there, there's like, hey, here's how to be an old vampire or a young vampire. But it's it's not necessarily the kindred, right? So it continues with the trend that Mage often presents it as part of the the fractured cosmos, where this is what a vampire looks like in the Mage world, which isn't necessarily the same as what a vampire looks like in in the vampire world. Right. There's enough material there that you could probably run a Wild West game if you wanted to. Okay. It's flavored more towards, you know, what you'd think of as Victorian rather than Wild West. Hmm. Uh, Now, the the question of colonialism is is certainly an important cultural question uh and something that the characters want to consider how does that translate do you feel into the mood of the book is it one of uh retrospection on the dawn of a new millennium is it one of high adventure does it pick one at all i think there are a lot of ways you can tune it if you want to play it different ways but there's sort of this general sense of like this is a horror game after all so there's this almost a sense of malaise because the traditions 
in a sense, they feel like they're collapsing. The, the crafts are beset by the technocratic union on all sides. Everyone's just sort of seeing the end of their way of life as they used to know it. And partly that's because of colonialism. Partly that's due to the Industrial Revolution. The, the world is undergoing a great amount of change. For the most part, that change is on the side of the order of reason. If you're a big mage fan, there there are some pretty deep cuts in here, which which I threw in, and I'm really happy about that, because I'm the kind of nerd that loves all those little details. The the, the meme with Leo DiCaprio, uh, the the one where he's where he's holding the glass and he's like pointing excited, like that that's the reaction I get like when I see a like a cool reference to something in World of Darkness history, like just um weird minor reference to something from 20 years ago that no one else is going to get. I threw a, f- a bunch of those in here and, and I hope people find them and enjoy them. Are there enough that you can share one? I will share one, which it's okay. I also mentioned this on the Onyx Pathcast. That one hasn't aired yet. So I'm, I'm going to duplicate that here. They always one up me. I'm sorry. That's if fun. you get this episode out first, no. then you'll have to <laughs> We always release on Saturday morning, so they will have beaten us by a day. In Mage production history, it looks, as far as I can tell, like one of the original names of what was going to be the Sons of Ether was the Parmenidians. Uh-huh. Except for they have nothing and... to do with the philosophy of Parmenides. <laughs> yes. Aside from that. Yes. But in the original Sons of Ether tradition book, there is reference to one of their earlier incarnations being the pupils of Parmenides. Hmm. And that's never mentioned again. As far as I know, in any mage book, it's never mentioned. The pupils of Parmenides are never mentioned again, even though sort of if you track the, the history of the Sons of Aether from you know their, their origins almost in the Dark Ages, they spend more time as the pupils of Parmenides than uh, with any other name. So I put a reference to them in here. So you will find the pupils of Parmenides in this this draft. Nice. Do we get any information on pirates? I don't think we mentioned pirates at all. The sort of the peak of the of the classic piracy period was sort of the late mid to late 1600s. So it's not really a, a big deal here. We, we've got a different focus going on. That is fine. The important part is what I heard you say was if someone wants to do Pirates of the Major Victorian Age for the Storyteller Vault, that's that's blue ocean. That's wide open field for that person who is curious about that particular topic. I, I, Absolutely. I, I try and be responsive to, to listener questions. What are the things that you that you appreciate about the book or particularly enjoyed that maybe I haven't asked you about or that people may be surprised to see? When you're putting a book together, you're sort of enjoying the process, but enjoying isn't necessarily the same thing as having fun. Mm-hmm. Playing a, a horror video game, for example, you're, you might be scared and you're maybe not having fun, but you're enjoying yourself. I had fun reading this book, both in terms of what it's trying to do as a game and also just the sheer amount of detail on my favorite era of mage history. There's so much going on, so much to, to dig into, whether you're like a huge mage fan who will get all of those tiny little references I crammed in there, or if you're a casual fan where this is your first mage game. There's so much to explore. The, the world is so big and so detailed. I really hope people like this, and I really hope people will enjoy playing it. I hope so, too. 
The feeling I've gotten from the media so far is it feels like it is a sci-fi supplement in the sense that one of the key questions asked in sci-fi is what is the cost of technology and what is the cost of progress? Um, mm-hmm. and, and that seems to be a, a key theme that we get. Um, and, and historical settings, especially for slightly fantastic historic settings, have the ability to ask contemporary questions in a way that make it easier to talk about because we don't have as much sense of self. So as we talk about decolonizing academia and decolonizing the arts, it it is sometimes easier to do that through the lens of setting a game in the Victorian era than it would be to do it contemporaneously where uh, some of our own uncomfortable assumptions start being put under consideration in a way that we we ourselves may not be prepared for. And and just the sheer rate of changes to how we see the world in the Victorian era, it, it does seem to at least rival our own and it doesn't seem like anything has slowed down since then. So seeing seemingly the start of the uh, the rate of history go nearly vertical, I, I think is something I'm curious to see in a, in a made setting. I was talking with some people on Twitter the other day about many generations, like you have Gen X on one side and mm-hmm. millennials on the other side. And there's been discussion of sort of a, a mini generation in between the two into which I fall. The terrible name they've decided to assign them is Xennials, but they're people who had an analog childhood, but a digital adulthood. You grew up having to, to manually, you know, press the buttons on the TV to get different channels. Now people aren't even using the TV because, you know, everything's on Netflix. Like just looking at the, the rate of technological advancement in our own lifetimes is just crazy if you just think about it from an outside perspective. From our future perspective, the rate was considerably slower during the Victorian period. It probably felt at the time about as radical as this feels to us. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about uh, how this book is coming to eventually our mailboxes and uh, how, how the new uh, Indiegogo crowdfunding platform is, is working out? Sure. We decided to go with Indiegogo for this one. We've done 50 Kickstarters, which is you know a crazy number. We, we don't want to be beholden to Kickstarter necessarily, so we want to look to see what other options are like. Some of them... Um, we can dismiss out of hand, but some of them, you know, it's it's close enough. And what what seems like a drawback, maybe not be all that bad if we actually try it. So it, the only way we, we know for sure is by trying it. We have to do it with something. It yeah. might as well be Mage. Mage has a bigger audience than a lot of the Onyx Path specific projects. We figured Mage probably had a big enough audience that a decent percentage would join us over on Indiegogo. A decent enough percentage to make the project a success. And we funded in uh, just a little under 21 hours, so good for us. So we're, we're just sort of feeling out how it works, both on our end and on the, the backer's end. Uh, what's a pain point? Are the drawbacks, is, is that a hill to die on? Is it something we can work around? One thing I do every time there's a Kickstarter update, I post it to our social media. But Indiegogo does not have direct URLs to updates. I can't even link to the update page on Indiegogo. So that's something I discovered today when trying to put out an update. So uh, we wouldn't have known that had we just sort of looked at the list of what Indiegogo offers. Mm-hmm. The, the only way to know that was by trying it. It's still up in the air whether or not we'll continue using Indiegogo, but it's it's an experiment. Our next crowdfund project will be back on Kickstarter. It's going to be Trinity Continuum Adventure, which is another one that another one of quote unquote my games. So this is a busy period for me. I, I understand a lot of people are frustrated and well, some people are not and thank you, 
but yeah, it's it's just part of the process of trying out different things to to move forward because I want Onyx Path to keep on going as long as we can, and that means trying different things and seeing what works and what doesn't. Nice. So far, have there been any uh, unexpected upsides to using Indiegogo that uh, either you think is a benefit to the people backing or maybe on the operations side? One of the things that you have to do on Kickstarter if you want to add like an add-on or yeah, usually it's just the add-ons. Like say say you get like a $50 book, but you also want the $15 storyteller screen. Mm-hmm. On Kickstarter, you have to manually figure out what the price would be of both combined and then manually change that as part of your pledge. You would have to manually type in $65. That's on you. And then during the backer kit at the end, then you can put that extra money towards specific stuff that you want. In this case, you can pick your add-ons when you're making your pledge, which is an advantage. The flip side of that is that Whereas Kickstarter waits until the end of the project to take your money, Indiegogo takes it as soon as you pledge. So you need to have your money available right now and not later. There are positives and there are negatives, and we're trying to figure out what's worth it to us and what isn't. Yeah. Uh, One of the things I would note to listeners, if you're investigating this, one of the backing levels is the Victorian Mage PDF. Uh, That does include a discount POD option. So that is one of those things where $30 is a bit much for just the PDF. Usually they come out a little bit lower than that, but it does include that discounted POD, which will make the the cost of the Ultimate Hardcover a little bit cheaper. So you are getting more than just a PDF for that. Uh, you're also getting the preview and you're getting a number of other things that you can add on later through, uh, through Pledge Manager if you are interested. So I'll just add that as a note. And uh, you also made mention that uh, there's a number of stretch goals that will likely happen. What should listeners do if they are interested in possibly directing some of those and saying, hey, I'm super interested in this. How should they cry into the void such that it may be heard? The Indiegogo, like our Kickstarters, has a comment section. If you back the Indiegogo, you can leave a comment and say, hey, I would really love to see some Umbra material. Or, Nice. We're, we're getting lower numbers than we're used to on Kickstarter because you know some people don't want to move over. Some people are waiting until maybe they have the funds. But just please consider backing it, even if you throw in for like five bucks just to get the back the uh, backer uh, previews just yeah just throw in a little something so you can you can check it out you can see what's going on and maybe you can increase your pledge later and if you're a fan of the late victorian well i mean it's very extremely late victorian the the 1930s our (laughs) next project is going to be uh adventure which covers that that nice crunchy pulp era and i guess i forgot to ask is queen victoria actually a technocrat do we get any awakened monarchs in this book neither Prince Albert nor Victoria were awakened as far as this book is concerned. However, they were very closely involved with the the technocratic union. Fascinating. Just that sentence is more interesting than either of the possible answers of yes or no could have been. And uh, those are always the good ones. Um, Ian, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you once again for having me. Hi, Mage fans. This is your host again, Terry Robinson, and I'm talking with... A second person who is involved with Victorian Mage. Our guest for this segment is friend of the show, Victor Kinzer, host of Walking Away from Arcadia, and another member of the Old World of Darkness Network, which isn't a thing yet, but one day, if I just wish it hard enough, it will be. Victor has thoughts. Victor, what was your involvement with Victorian Mage? So I was one of the writers early on in the project. The project went through kind of a couple iterations at the beginning. And originally, I was just going to write up the the Golden Guild. 
then some things changed and I had an opportunity to do some more work on the order of reason. So I ended up writing up several of the conventions and a couple of the blocks for the order of reason. I suspect by the time this drops, everyone will probably know what that is based on the manuscript releases from the Indiegogo. But I just had so much fun digging into the conventions and what they were like during the Victorian era and and specifically like this fascinating moment where the technocracy existed, but Victoria hadn't come, come in and done her second reorganization yet. So I worked on the Golden Guild, the Invisible Exchequers, the Celestial Masters, the Void Seekers, and Brotherhood of Mechanicians. Some of them I have a long history with. Some of them I had to kind of nestle in and figure out new, which was a really fun challenge. I, I was definitely able to do some interesting things that I never thought I'd be able to do with Mage. So it was really exciting. Invisible Exchequer is the dorkiest sounding name that is humanly possible. <laughs> it's, it's such like a Beelish British villain. Like, <laughs> he's rich and invisible. What will you be able to do to stop him? He's only visible with his magic top hat on or something like that. You're like, what? <laughs> well, and it's, it's fascinating because... When I first started working on Victorian Mage, I didn't know about the Invisible Exchequers. I knew about the High Guild and mm -hmm. the Golden Guild during the Victorian era. And then in some of the changes, they added the Invisible Exchequers in, who are part of the Syndicate, what will become the Syndicate we all know and don't really love. And I went, what is this? And they were a Victorian money-manipulating group in the technocracy that was introduced during Revised, that was introduced during Revised. And it's interesting because I'd done, I'd done all of this work already on what I'd imagined was the Victorian version of the High Guild. And then here is a, another group and they're both there. And so I really had to kind of think about why, why would there be two groups to cover money? And I had a couple conversations with one of the other writers and they wanted me to fold in a plot point. And it all kind of came together with the way I wrote about them. I haven't seen the the text that they're going to be releasing as part of the indiegogo yet i'm going to see that at the same time everyone else does so i don't want to say too much say something that got changed in development um but i'm pretty sure that the reason that the high guild broke up and then gets back together again probably won't be substantially changed and i'm i'm pretty happy with how that all came together yeah, it's kind of interesting because this seems to be a point where there are at least as many conventions as there are traditions. Through the entire Victorian era, you have the eight seats. The seat of matter is empty, but also at the same time, we have all of these technocratic groups running around that haven't quite uh, collapsed into their modern form. And part of it feels like a DC reorg where we like, uh, we got two guys on this team that go really fast. What do we do to make them special? Um, like we, we got two money people. How do we, how do we make this work out? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, what else about the era or the mechanics or the, or the mage secret history of it? Were you pleased to see? So the thing I think I liked the most, and it was something I tried to capture in my writing hopefully I did a decent job, is you have the contemporary era mm -hmm. where the traditions are the good guys and the technocratic union are the bad guys. And there's this kernel of well-intention in there, but they're the bad guys, they're authoritarian. 
And then you have Sorcerer's Crusade where the roles are almost reversed. I mean, the Order of Reason wants to do away with the horrors of the world that make it impossible to live in. Mm -hmm. And the traditions are just kind of clinging to this thing that they don't want to change, even though people lead miserable, horrible lives, you know, victimized by monsters and ravaged by disease. And then in the Victorian era, the Order of Reason has basically become the authoritarian nightmare. It will become, but not entirely. And I just love being caught right before you go over that point of no return with the Order of Reason. We're like, maybe, maybe we could turn this thing around. Victoria hasn't done her reorganization yet, and there are a lot of problems. The authoritarian nightmare we end up with didn't come out of nowhere, but it hasn't hit yet. Mm -hmm. And just the possibility of turning that ship is so very mage to me. So that's kind of my favorite part about this period. I mean, there, there are so many brilliant things with the traditions. The traditions are in a total shambles in this period. They still haven't filled a seat. They don't know it yet. They're about to lose another one. Mm -hmm. well, it's just, it's rough. <laughs> they get the Society of Ether for like eight years before the Ali Batin depart. So like they, <laughs> the Avengers assemble briefly and, and then the Batid are like, JK, bye. <laughs> um, and then they're like, oh, until the uh, virtual adepts uh, kick around. I, I'm super curious to see what the uh, Electrodyne engineers are like while they're still part of the technocracy. Yeah, I did not write the Electrodyne engineers, but I did read through their write-up to inform some of the stuff that I did. And it's really good. I just really like it. I think people are going to love all of the conventions. I didn't read as much about the traditions because I wanted to wait and get finished text and I didn't necessarily need to write it for what I was writing. Mm -hmm. So I intentionally, you know, even though we share stuff as writers for consistency, I only read the things I needed to for my own quality. So I'm having a lot of fun reading the stuff that's being previewed at the same time that everyone else does. So one of the things that's interesting is Sorcerer's Crusade kind of outlines what the paradigms at the time were, and, and magic kind of reflects that. That's the, the grand introduction of Ars Concupidae. And so uh, Ars Cupididae, sorry, concupiscence would be interesting. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like St. Augustine just comes and yells at you, and that's how you do your magical effects. Anyway, what do you feel the key to the Victorian era paradigms would be for a technocrat? That's changing. So Ars Cupidite is forever. <laughs> and, you know, that the art of desire and manipulating other people's desire, it shows up in every period. But a lot of the other paradigms are shifting. And I really liked tapping that. You know, the various groups that eventually become Iteration X are in the technocracy at this point. And they don't all get along yet, necessarily, at least not, they don't all have the same ideas about where they want to end up. If everyone had perfectly aligned visions, Victoria wouldn't need to reorganize everything the second time. And I think what's important in the Victorian era is it's such a fundamental period of change and a really big social change. I think in a lot of ways, it speaks to the moment we're in right now. You have the labor movement, you have the rise of industrialization, you have the potential to produce enough for everyone for maybe the first time in history. And it's just not working out for people like 
the marketing material says it should. And there's a lot of tension between machines are the path forward, no humanity is the path forward, we need to stay rooted in that. So I think the paradigms are very in conflict, certainly between the order of reason and the traditions, but also I think within those groups. It's, it's a period of time where you even have things like spiritualism and the rise of a, a lot of the secret societies we think of today, the Golden Dawn, you know, Masonic Lodges. And so it's this period where even the traditions are kind of toying around, I'd like to think, with maybe we get in on this manipulating consensus game instead of just being mages and pull more people in and start publishing works. I mean, to speak to, to our history and not the game history, it's not too long after all of this, you know, more early 20th century, that Crowley is really running amok publishing things. But the foundation for what Crowley did was laid in the Victorian era. And you were starting to get photographs and claims about fairies and ghosts and spirits becoming very public. So I, I feel like everything is in flux in the Victorian era. And while we know where we really ended up in the real world, your game could go off in a very different direction and end with a very different consensus. Yeah. Do you know if we get any information about the uh, move to Shock al Noor in this? I don't believe so. I think that term actually, Maktashaf al-Nur, I think that's one of the terms where it's like kind of gobbledygook. Um, and there is there is a different term that's sort of arisen. I do know that there is more information on orders of mages from other parts of the world yeah. um, during that period. But again, not my section. I, I briefly looked at that part of the outline when it was delivered, but that was a while ago. And I wanted to save the surprise for myself for fully developed text. So I'm not certain. But useless as an interview. <laughs> uh -huh. um, yeah, one of the things that Ian was mentioning is that one of the goals of this book is to kind of give a second data point as to what magic was like in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of funny because Ian's like, yeah, there's a chapter called The World. And I'm like, a uh, chapter. And then I think about all the mage books that are like two chapters. <laughs> and each of those chapters is 60 pages long. And you're like, okay, maybe, maybe a chapter is good enough. <laughs> I, I can say Victorian mage is more than two chapters. But I, I do remember that section, just thinking back to what I saw in the outline, looked like it was going to be pretty meaty. I'm very excited about it. But that is that is an area of the book where I will find out along with everyone else. Okay. So. Is there anything else that you want to share that you are excited or looking forward to? Uh, is there anything mechanics-wise that you think is particularly interesting or, or maybe any elements of secret history that occur, like uh, either weird global phenomena or weird paradigm uh, explanations or anything like that? So I will give one kind of global phenomena thing that I wrote in. Fingers crossed it survived development, and if not, I'll make a couple later. In The Fragile Path, uh, there is this little snippet. I the time barrier. Like, You're talking about yeah, the time barrier. It's the time barrier. And I thought a lot about the time barrier when I was doing the writing and the fact that the technocracy historically hasn't had a lot of time magic. Mm -hmm. But like the Victorian era is all about time magic. And I did some reading after I was prompted by a friend and I found out that this is the period that time zones came into existence. Mm -hmm. And time zones were originally invented, if you will, by an astronomer. 
Mm -hmm. um, they weren't implemented by the astronomer. He didn't have the power to, but he's the one that came up with the idea and pitched it and ultimately sold it on the, wouldn't it be great? We could do business together and let's have the trains run on time and have a time that they could run against. So that was the pitch, but thought about through a mage threshold, you've just shattered time across the entire world. Anyone who existed before that concept wouldn't even understand how to traverse time it could feasibly shatter peeping toms hoping to change the past and it could certainly potentially act to keep things from the dark deep places out of the world mm -hmm. and an astronomer invented it and that's the celestial master's entire raison d'etat protect the mud ball from the things out of time out of dimension out of etc so it's not a lot. I, I wasn't able to expound on it the way I did here, but I have a little mention in what I wrote up, and those were my thoughts behind it. And fingers crossed, I, I hope it survived development. I think it probably did. But again, I won't know for certain until they share that text. And if it didn't, what we get to do is all post in the comments. And now we have two comments that we need to post. One, we want more information about Victor's, the, the time barrier. And we want Terry to write a couple of chapters on what the Umbra is like during the Victorian era. So uh, that, that is a callback to talking with Ian where I'm like, do we get any information on the Victorian Umbra? And he's like, I don't think so. <laughs> and he said oh, well, very slowly. That, sounds, that sounds like stretch gold text if ever I've heard it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and now that I've written for uh, Technocracy, uh, the agent's dossier, I, I'm, I'm in. Um, <laughs> I don't have to sign any additional non-disclosure agreements. I'm jazzed. You're jazzed. Um, any anything else that you want to mention about this book, or alternatively, is there anything in the uh, the world of Victor that you think mage fans might be interested in? I don't want to dive too much further into the book. You know, again, not knowing when the sections I wrote on are going to be shared more publicly, but just that I think it's incredibly cool. The sections that I did read from other writers uh, totally blew me away. I think it's just going to be a fantastic book across the board. And yeah, in terms of In the World of Victor, we are going to be wrapping up our actual play of Countless Dreams very soon. I'm almost done with that. Just really walking away from Arcadia. I have uh, fewer things going on than normal, but it's been kind of nice to take a bit of a break. And we look forward to uh, to talking to you when next you have a project like that. Victor, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Mage the Podcast, which did not participate in either of the Opium Wars. The show is made possible by executive producers who include Anders S., Andrew K., Andrew E., Brendan, Bryce Perry, Christopher P., Chris Zach, Ira Grace, Jenna F., Justin B., John H., John Magnuson, Josh Golden, Michael Parker, Richard Bat Brewster, William C., William M., and Jay Sunsern. Today's shout-out is to Andrew E., noted hat collector and hats rights campaigner. Whether it be the lowest painter's cap to the finest of toques, Andrew has advocated for the rights of all caps, Yushankas, pork pies, Hamburgs, Panamas, boulders, campaigners, beanies, salicots, pickle hobs, yes, and even trilbies, to be their best selves, unshackled from social convention. Andrew works tirelessly to extend these rights to non-hats and hat-adjacent headwear, including visors and fascinators, and we are all grateful for Andrew's work. If you'd like to become an executive producer like Andrew E., Get a chat color in Discord and have me make up something about you periodically, as well as receive our executive producer-only podcast, So What's Your Plan? 
You can now become one by clicking on Become a Supporter in the show notes or through the episode entries on our webpage. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. You can subscribe to our show on Spotify, Anchor, TuneIn, iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, or the podcatcher of your choosing. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also, go to Mates the Podcast for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.